Hello, I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. Today, Loreto and I are back with Talking About California, continuing with a new, shorter, special series, but one involving issues of the greatest importance. The war rages in Ukraine. We all know that. So our purpose here is not to compete with the news outlets, uh, cable and radio, but to try to get closer to the causes and possible consequences of this war. So we are pleased to have several of the finest voices of our time, political scholars, journalists of the highest order joining us. And our guest today is Phyllis Benes. Phyllis Benes directs the new internationalism project at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., IPS focusing in Middle East, U.S. wars, United Nations issues. She's also a fellow of the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam. In 2001, she helped found the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights and now serves on the national board of Jewish Voice for Peace. She works with many anti-war and Palestinian rights organizations, writing and speaking widely across the U.S. and around the world. She has served as an informal advisor to several top U.N. officials in Middle East issues and was twice shortlisted to become the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territory. Phyllis has written and edited 11 books, among her latest is the just-published seventh updated edition of her popular Understanding the Palestinian-Israeli Conflict. She has also written Before and After, U.S. Foreign Policy and the War on Terror, and Challenging Empire, How People, Governments, and the U.N. Defy U.S. Power. She's been featured on CNN, uh, the PBS NewsHour, MSNBC. Democracy Now!, Pacifica Radio, Grit TV, BBC, and NPR. Thank you so much for coming today. Can we call you, Phyllis? Of course. It's great to be with both of you. So, Phyllis, this isn't it, it's, it's not the first word you covered, but you are not a journalist per se. You are also an activist and an advocate of peace. Can you tell us something about this? It's sort of your life's mission, it seems. How did you begin this work? I was very lucky. I began college in the amazing year of 1968. And I immediately became very involved in the movement against the war in Vietnam. And since that time, I've been lucky enough to be able to participate in global struggles against war, against occupations from Palestine to Afghanistan to Iraq to Syria and the Balkans and Central America, Cuba, many different countries. And that's been my work. So these days, although I work mainly on Middle East issues, Palestinian rights, uh, ending wars, uh, when this war broke out, clearly, even though this is not in the Middle East, this is something that has to do, everything has to do with U.S. militarism, with U.S. foreign policy, with the military industrial complex, as we like to call it, the the drive towards greater wars to fund the military producers in this country. And all of those are issues I've worked on for a long time. So I was pulled into this one as well. Of course. Um, well, 
A word for our our sake and for our listeners, just to get some definitions to begin with. Tell us uh, what uh, is the Institute for Policy Studies, and maybe I'll give you two questions at the same time. Sure. And what is the Transnational Institute in Amsterdam? Huh. Well, IPS began in the early 60s, in 1963. It was founded by two what we might call um, escapees from the, the, uh, the White House and the State Department, Marcus Raskin and Richard Barnett, uh, who were both working in the Kennedy administration and both realized that they did not agree with the trajectory of that administration. And they believed that this was the moment to create something that had never existed, which was an independent activist think tank based on progressive ideas of supporting uh, peace and justice and environmental equality and justice. And the Institute began then and has proceeded till now with lots of changes. You know, that was an era when there were not a lot of women, there were not a lot of people of color involved in these movements and IPS reflected that. But over the years it changed and uh, it now works with movements, with progressive movements to build peace and justice and environmental justice as well. So we work with the anti-war movement, we work with the women's movement and the labor movement and the organizations like the Poor People's Campaign. We serve as the research arm of the Poor People's Campaign with Reverend Liz Theo Harris and Reverend William Barber. Uh, and we work with all kinds of different movements to help uh, figure out how to talk about these issues. We do a lot of writing, a lot of speaking, and we see our job as helping movements to change the world, small tasks. The question of the, the Transnational Institute, or TNI, was originally created by IPS. It's been independent for 25, 30 years by now. And that began in the mid-70s in the context of uh, the work that was underway to support movements against military dictatorships in Latin America. And this was at a time when, in 1976, the former Chilean ambassador to the United States and former Chilean foreign minister, Orlando Letelier, was assassinated in Washington, DC at the time that he was working for the Institute for Policy Studies. He had been forced into exile after being imprisoned for a year following the coup in Chile in 1973. And he was released in 74, came to, to the US and was working at IPS. Uh, he was one of the most effective organizers for democracy in Chile and against the, the military coup. And in response to that, the Pinochet dictatorship led by Pinochet himself, we've later been able to confirm, orchestrated his assassination, along with the killing of a young woman at IPS named Ronnie Carpen Moffat. Her husband was also in the car. He was thrown clear, and he survived the, uh, the double assassination here in DC. But in the context of all of that, people at IPS realized that there might come a time when it, was, it would no longer be possible to work in the United States. IPS was on the Nixon's enemy list, et cetera, and began looking for a place that would encourage activism and research, all in the interests, again, of changing the world towards democracy, for some towards socialism, towards many different things, towards environmental justice. And in that context, went to a number of, of cities to see where in the world that kind of freedom of, of speech and action would be respected. And it seemed the Netherlands was a pretty good shot. So it was created in Amsterdam and became independent quite, quite soon after. But we've always worked together. I, I've been working with TNI almost since I came to IPS in, in the late 60s, uh, sorry, in the late 90s. 
Um, I wasn't quite old enough in the late 60s. So it was a, you know, a time of amazing collaborations between North and South, which is the main thing that TNI works on. It's a very international institute that doesn't just focus on US or European policy, but looks at the impact of policies on the global South and takes up global issues, whether it's corporate-driven globalization, whether it's the pandemic most recently, the environmental crises, refugees, all of those issues. Do you go back and forth or are you resident really in Washington? I go back and forth. Uh, I did before the pandemic. I right. haven't been out of the country for two and a half years now, three years almost. But I do go to ordinarily in the before times, I would go to TNI at least once a year, sometimes more for meetings, conferences, other meetings across Europe, uh, part, participating in, in peace movement activities. There's a lot of international work that we do at IPS, and I've been very privileged to be part of a great deal of it. Yeah. Well, one more question, a, a kind of a big one, but just to start with, Phyllis, you've seen a lot of, of war. We've, we've just already heard about that in Central America and the Middle East. Do you ever wonder, you must wonder sometimes, why so much war? Yeah, I do. I, I wonder why we haven't been more successful at stopping it. I don't wonder why it happens. That part, I think, is a little easier to answer. It has everything to do with the money. Follow the money is the old saying, and it's pretty accurate. Who's profiting from these wars? We like to hear and we like to say, no one wants this war. And that's almost never true. There's always someone who does want it. And unfortunately, even though those are very small numbers of people, they are very loud and powerful voices. You know, we could look at the war in Ukraine now and say, well, no one wants this war. That's certainly not true. Who's going to benefit from this war? Well, U.S. and others, but particularly U.S. war manufacturers are going to make a killing on this war. And they said so before the war even started at a, a shareholders meeting, the CEO of forgetting which one, um, one of the, the major military corporations here in the U.S., it'll come to me in a minute which one it was, uh, told his shareholders that they were a little concerned because of the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, which had, of course had brought enormous profits to them. Uh, and then he went on to say, but we're feeling a little bit optimistic because there's some interesting news coming from Eastern Europe. This was two weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine. So in that context, you can say, well, they, they're going to benefit from this. Whenever the U.S. goes to war, whenever the U.S. allies go to war, whenever the U.S. supports other wars, it means enormous profits for the war, the warmongers, the war makers, the, the war industries. And these corporations in the last several years, they have received almost half of the enormous U.S. military budget. This year, the, the military budget is $778 billion. It's an enormous amount of money. It's one of those unfathomable amounts of money, 350 billion went to the, to the corporations directly. So when people say, well, how can you say we shouldn't be fighting there? Don't you support the troops? I tell them, yeah, I support the troops. I support the troops being paid enough so that their families don't qualify for food stamps. As we learned in 2017, 23,000 military families were making so little money that they qualified for food stamps because they couldn't afford to buy food on a military salary, while the CEOs of these enormous corporations are earning between 19 and $20 million a piece every year. 
to run the corporations that are providing the toys, the boys, you know, you hear about the military being the boys and the toys. Of course, these days it's girls as well as boys. But the notion is that it's people and it's the instruments of war. And it's the manufacturers of the instruments of war who are making a killing on these wars. And uh, has uh, war in the Ukraine surprised you? Somehow no wars surprise me anymore. That's why I mean, it has just come to me. It's, it's Raytheon was the corporation I was talking about earlier. The reason we have corporations like Raytheon and McDonnell Douglas and all of the others is precisely because the U.S. has been based on militarism since its founding. Violence and militarism has characterized the rise of this country since the first European settlers came and began to seize the land that had once belonged to indigenous people across, across this continent. And from that time, the issue of better weapons than the other guy, better, more, more powerful weapons, more powerful armies than everyone else was part of what made this country wealthy and powerful. The great Howard Zinn, one of the great historians of our time, described how the U.S. was grounded in the legacies of genocide against Native people and the enslavement of African people, and that that's what made this country so wealthy and so powerful. He went on to say, and I think this is very important, he went on to say that this country was also founded on the legacy of movements against genocide and slavery, which sometimes succeeded, sometimes did not. But there were always, always, always movements opposing those horrific realities. That hasn't changed. We still have important, powerful movements. Sometimes we get it right and we win some small victories. Other times we don't. But those movements have been a part of this country right from the beginning. And how would you say this war today is different or the same as as other wars i suppose especially the wars still going on one way or another in the middle east but also in uh, central africa no absolutely if you compare this with the wars of what was once called the global war on terror that was always my favorite acronym GWAT. it sounds so evil somehow and it was accurate in reflecting that But the wars of the global war on terror, which as you rightly say, are still going on, uh, despite the withdrawal of US troops in a variety of places, US forces, US drones, US airstrikes, US supplying weapons to others, all those things are still still going on. This war is similar in many ways. The, The suffering of people doesn't change whether it's Aleppo or Kiev that are under attack. The creation of enormous refugee flows, we saw that in the Syrian war, we saw it in Libya, we saw it in Afghanistan when there was so many, so many hundreds of thousands and ultimately millions of people who fled into Pakistan and to Iran. You know, all of these are similar. What's different is we have not seen for two generations the face-to-face fighting of two global powers, both of whom have, we've never seen this before, nuclear weapons. That's what makes this war so incredibly dangerous. It's not because it's more important when there is a war in in Europe than in Afghanistan or in Mali or in Palestine or in Somalia or in Syria or Libya or anywhere else. It's because this war could easily, way too easily, escalate to a nuclear exchange between the world's two greatest nuclear weapons states, who together between the US and Russia 
hold more than 90% of all the nuclear weapons in the world. And I don't believe that the leadership of either the US or Russia either want or intend to use nuclear weapons. But wars have a way of expanding far beyond the intentions and the desires and the plans of their orchestrators. And when you have a war that is looking for ways to escalate, which is what we're seeing, there is simply no guarantee that that escalation will not lead to what could be global catastrophe. It's not very likely, but when you're talking about the stakes that are so high, anything other than impossible is simply way too high a risk. There simply is no way to justify a war that risks a nuclear exchange. That's what's different about this war. Even here in our little town of Mendocino, in a very small community, the whole town is covered in flags of Ukraine. So it seems that also the public reaction towards this war is different. How do you see that reaction, uh, yeah. that publicizing or, or how the public has reacted to it? It is different, particularly given that U.S. troops are not directly, and I, I stress directly, fighting in this war. U.S. military is certainly involved, providing the weapons, providing the planes, providing all kinds of things, training. But we don't see U.S. troops participating directly and crucially in terms of how the war is understood. We don't see uh, U.S. military casualties from this war, at least not yet. It's not to say it's impossible. But it is different, and it has everything to do with how the war has been treated, how the media has treated it, how the government has treated it, where it has gone back to the old system of this is a war between good and evil, between right and wrong, between us and the bad guys. This is, you know, they're treating it like a, a movie, you know, where Ukraine are the, uh, and the Ukrainian people who have been incredibly creative and brave in fighting back against this invasion. There's no question about that. And they have been billed in the US press as superheroes. Zelensky has become the hero that we don't have in this country, the global hero. And everyone wants to be part of that. Everyone wants to be part of fighting on the, the good fight on the side of, of justice and righteousness. You know, truth, justice, and the American way used to be the slogan of the Superman Uh, cartoons that emerged in the context of the Cold War. This is very much a return to that. This is like the early days of the Cold War. It's us against the evil empire. All of that concentrated in the personal demonization of Putin. And it does seem that from what we know, and we don't know a whole lot about how decisions are made in Russia, but from what we do know, there does seem to be an incredibly narrow set of people around Putin who make these decisions. Putin himself is extraordinarily powerful in making many of these decisions. That makes it easier to have the press focusing the way they are. And I, would, I, I think one thing that's important here for us to recognize, there's been a lot of discussion, particularly among progressives, among activists, among various social movements, about the hypocrisy and the double standards. You know, why is it that when The U.S. itself was at war in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in all these other places. We didn't see the New York Times and the Washington Post and every newspaper, the entire front page above the fold, five different articles about how terrible the war was 
and how brave the Ukrainians are, how they're facing it, the, the humanitarian crisis, the, the bravery of people fighting back, it's been extraordinary. And I actually think that's a good thing. The problem with it is it doesn't ordinarily happen. When the wars are fought by the US against generally black and brown people somewhere else in the world, not in Europe, not against white people, you don't see that kind of focus on just how terrible the war is for, for premature babies who are being born in, in uh, uh, bomb shelters. That happens in every war. But did we ever see front page coverage of it in any of these other, uh, any of these other wars? No, we did not. The question of how refugees, with some exceptions, clearly racist attacks on uh, African students, on Indian doctors and others who were in Ukraine trying to get out, who are sent to the back of the line, literally, by both Ukrainian officials and then by the entry officials in Poland and elsewhere. But overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, Ukrainians are being welcomed with incredible warmth and care and empathy in all the countries they are arriving in. And that's as it should be. We shouldn't be criticizing that. That's what we should be demanding for every flow of refugees, whether they are Central Americans coming to the United States, whether they are Syrians trying to get to Norway, trying to get to, to, uh, uh, to the UK. What we saw in those episodes are the, the creation of new walls, barbed wire dividers, the, the division of a once unified part of Europe where there were no borders, proudly the European Union would say, this is a no border arrangement where you can cross our borders without a passport, without a visa. You don't have to stop the train and show your, your visas. All of that, all of that happens in, a, in an entirely different way when we are seeing this war. And this is the model. This is now what we could be pointing to, to say, this is how you treat refugees. The Biden administration just announced they're going to accept 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. That's fantastic. And what about the 200,000 from Central America and another 100,000 from Ukraine? And what about the 5 million Palestinian refugees who have still been denied their right to either go home or to find citizenship somewhere else if they chose that? but first their right to go home. The rights of refugees that are being so well protected in this war provides us the model of what has been denied to refugees for the last 50 years. Well, that's, that's really uh, interesting to hear you say that. Loretto and I have done most of our programs in the past couple of years on the Southern border Mm. and struggled uh, to find explanations uh, and alternatives for what's going on. Um, but Phyllis, I'd, I'd like to pause us here for just a, a moment. This is uh, Cal Winslow, and I'm with Loretto Rojas. We're your hosts today. Our program is talking about California. This is KZYX. Mendocino County Community Listener Supported Radio. And our guest is Phyllis Bennis, the celebrated fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, DC, and the author of a dozen books on international politics and policies. 
Uh, thank you, Felix, for talking about this uh, treatment of the refugees, which is uh, something that it really um, have uh, upset many, including myself. Just seeing, I mean, uh, as as you said, I'm I'm so grateful to see this nice treatment, like uh, embracing the Ukrainians with their, with open hands. It's just it's impossible not to think if all the children that we have seen in the cages and the horrible situation at the border. But the other thing that comes to mind to me is like a, which democracy is uh, worth to defend as the way it's being done? Because we see the case in the Palestinian territory where they have, through the years, implemented all kind of democratic uh, requests by the... Uh, other countries to prove that they can govern themselves. Nevertheless, that has not helped them into their own cause. So this is very interesting to to hear you talk about the differences and and the importance of uh, developing the policies that you're working on. So you also just talked about the new militarization of the world. Can you tell us a little more about what you mean by that when you talk about all this large militarization. Yeah, you know, one of the consequences of the war in Ukraine, I'm afraid, is going to be an enormous re-legitimation of militarism that was finally beginning to diminish in terms of how people saw it. Ironically, not least because you see that the militarization of Europe, which is an old story, I mean, since World War II, the creation of NATO, which was designed to be an anti-Soviet interest uh, uh, instrument that would link the countries of quote the West, meaning basically you know Europe, the U.S., uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the, the white colonial states, if you will, um, against the Soviet Union. That was the the frame of what NATO was all about, and it it meant that a huge proportion of GDP was spent on the military mostly not the 2%, which is a huge number that the US and others in NATO were demanding, but still way more than uh, uh, European countries would necessarily have chosen to spend on the military. It led to a situation we still have today where there are five European countries where the US has nuclear weapons stored and ready to, to fire from these NATO countries that are not under the control of those countries, are under US control, but are in Europe. So the, the escalating militarization that we're now seeing in the context of NATO emerging as this global good guy, that you have countries that have become wealthy and influential and powerful by being neutral. Countries like Austria, like Sweden, like Finland. Finland and Sweden are both now saying they think, they're thinking about wanting to join NATO. They never were willing to join NATO. Now, all of a sudden, it's on their agenda. You know, this sort of thing, I'm afraid we're going to see. Germany, which since World War II and the defeat of Nazism, has, to their credit, been unwilling to support sending troops or sending weapons to countries at war. They've been unwilling to, to spend huge amounts on their military for all the right reasons, given their history in particular, but also given the reality of knowing that it doesn't work. All this militarization did not prevent Russia from invading Ukraine at the end of the day. It didn't work.
But now we're seeing Germany announcing to great fanfare, they were greeted, the, the prime minister was greeted with a uh, standing ovation in the parliament when he said that Germany was now going to spend an additional $100 billion in euros uh, to bolster their military and that they were going to, to work towards the 2% of GDP goal in military spending. That's a travesty. And it's going to have an enormous, terrible consequence for the people of Germany who have one of the best systems of public health care, education, uh, uh, support for unions, all those things is going to be at risk when they start putting so much money into the military. The impact on the global south is going to be huge, partly because when more powerful countries have bigger militaries, they tend to use them. They tend to use them. They tend to go abroad if necessary, to use those military forces. It's also already having, this war is having a terrible impact on the humanitarian condition of really all of, of the poor countries of the world, but most especially in the Middle East and North Africa, who are very dependent on wheat from Russia and Ukraine. The two countries together provide between 25 and 30% of all the wheat in the world. That's a huge amount of food. And it means that food is going to be in short supply and what is available is going to be far more expensive. And that's going to affect the poorest countries first and hardest. And within every country, it's going to be the most vulnerable, the poorest, the, the, the weakest strands of society are going to be the ones that suffer the most. So all of these consequences are, are standing and staring us in the face when we look at the, the escalation of militarism rising across Europe, uh, the impact of the sanctions, which are being supposedly targeted at uh, changing Russian policy, but there's no indication, as has always been the case, massive public, public affecting broad economic sanctions have never led to, uh, certainly not to regime change, but they also haven't led to policy changes. They didn't in Iraq, they didn't in Afghanistan. It's never worked. It hasn't worked in Cuba after 60 years. You know, this doesn't work. What it does do is create a whole new class of poor people that ends up being the biggest sector of society in whatever country is subject to those sanctions. So that's going to have uh, a huge impact. When the U.S. now admits that their sanctions are designed to, quote, cripple, that's the word they use, to cripple the Russian economy, what they're saying is we want to affect the entire population because maybe then they will do something. I don't know what they think that population is going to do. The US itself acknowledges that Russia is an incredibly authoritarian country where people's voices do not get heard and do not get heeded. So what's the, what's the justification for imposing sanctions that are designed to impact the entire population? So all of these things are the potential consequences before we even get to the danger of the possibility of nuclear exchange. And in a moment, as we face now, when almost all of the existing arms control agreements, which were, what's the right word, insufficient, to put it politely, incredibly in, insufficient in, the, in recent decades across Europe, all of them had failed to abolish nuclear weapons, which is the only thing that's going to save the world from these weapons in the long run. All of those treaties, all of those agreements, are either they've either expired or they're about to expire or sunrise, as they say, or they're simply being ignored or they're being abandoned by one side or another. Mostly the U.S. has walked away from most of them. 
And in that context, this is a very, very dangerous moment for an escalating war that involves the two biggest nuclear weapon states right at the center of it. Can we talk for uh, a bit about negotiations? Um, I think from the beginning you've um, called for, if I'm correct here for uh, your, your phrase has been negotiations, not escalations. And just recently uh, the headlines have been about uh, projected negotiations in uh, Turkey. I wondered if, if you could uh, talk to us uh, about that, because it seems that negotiations ought to be the focus, but there are those voices which uh, want to win the war. Mm -hmm. And there's Biden saying that he wants Putin to go. Whether that was a gaffe or not, we don't know. But could you talk about uh, the possibility of negotiations and why it's not... uh, a sort of cowardly alternative. Right. Well, the reality is every war ends with negotiations. It may be negotiating how to surrender, but there's some kind of negotiations that end wars. The question is how long does the war go on? How many people get killed? How many cities get leveled before you get there? In my view, the question is how do we get there sooner? How do we get there now? There have been negotiations underway There's already been an acknowledgement from the Ukrainian leadership, including from President Zelensky directly, the things they're willing to give up. It's clear they're willing to give up NATO membership because that wasn't on the table anyway, in any practical way. The problem was the US wasn't prepared to say that out loud. They've said it quietly. There's no way that Ukraine is gonna be joining NATO anytime in the foreseeable future, but they won't say it out loud. They need to say that out loud. Now the, the Ukrainians have said that. They've said that they would be willing to accept a negotiated arrangement of neutrality, which is, you know, without joining NATO, they would have some kind of protection, something like the Finland model, maybe, or some other model, but that's already a given. The the Russians would obviously impose a ceasefire. They would withdraw their troops. What remains uncertain are the issues having to do with territory whether Crimea, which has been fully under Russian control since 2014, whether that would be acknowledged as being part of Russia uh, is uncertain, whether the Donbass, the the region where there are parts that have been under uh, Russian control as well, whether there might be some kind of arrangement for an initiative, a voting initiative within those regions to see what people in those regions want to do take that into account, maybe there would be some kind of autonomy in those regions rather than independence. Um, You know, there's a number of possibilities. Those are the issues that have not yet been resolved, the issues involving territory and the, uh, the, the sovereignty of Ukraine in those areas. But those are negotiable issues. They are negotiable issues. There needs to be negotiations. The U.S. needs to make clear that it's Uh, uh, sanctions, which are rightfully being called crippling, they are undermining the ability of the the Russian economy to function at all, that those sanctions will be lifted when there's a ceasefire. So far, the U.S. has not been willing to say that. They need to make that clear. They need to make clear that the sanctions are not permanent and not get into, there's been sort of two voices. There have been U.S. officials saying that the sanctions are not designed to be permanent, 
But there's other US officials who have used this language about how we, before we could lift sanctions, we need evidence that the Russian actions are irreversible. And exactly what that means is very dicey because obviously, unless you're saying that Russia would have to give up its military, which is certainly not on the table, the possibility of further aggression in the future is always a possibility in any country. So how you would prove, how you would find, quote, evidence that the Russian actions are irreversible, I don't know. But that's why you need negotiations to do things like rebuilding the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. The most important, in my view, political organization in Europe, partly because it includes everybody, not just the West and the, the West of Europe that's allied with the United States and NATO, but all of Europe. It includes uh, uh, Ukraine, it includes Russia. They're all included. And it's a political diplomatic body. It's not a military body. So that's who should be involved, for example, in hosting the, the, uh, the negotiations. That's not happening right now. It's being hosted by various uh, uh, regional leaders. And if that works, fine, as long as there, there is some kind of process of negotiations. But we need that kind of diplomacy. Once that happens, then we can talk about you know, looking forward, looking to the future, about the, the dangers that still remain. NATO is going to emerge from this far stronger, bigger, and more weaponized and more strong than, than ever before. In my view, that's a big problem. I was part of the, the groupings of people who have been saying no to NATO since the end of the Cold War. You know, if you want to declare victory, fine, claim that you won the Cold War, but acknowledge the Cold War is over and go home. You know, the, the opposition to, to NATO, uh, the Warsaw Pact dissolved when the Soviet Union collapsed. There was no strategic enemy. So why did it continue? And then suddenly, why was it used first to justify the war in, in Kosovo and then to fight the war in Kosovo, to fight the war in Libya, to fight the war in Afghanistan? All of that involved NATO way outside of this notion of it being a defensive instrument inside of Europe. All of a sudden, it's focusing all over the world as an instrument of U.S. policy. That's a problem, but that's something we can't really deal with until there's an end to the war in Ukraine. And then applying all of these various lessons that we were talking about earlier, the, the racism, the hypocrisy, the xenophobia that has shaped U.S. policy towards refugees, European policy towards refugees, things like the Muslim ban, the caging of children, all of these things. We need to use the lesson of Ukraine to say, that's how you treat refugees. You welcome them. You provide hot soup at the border and a home right away for people to live in. You don't cage people. You don't divide families. This is criminal. It's not just bad policy. It's a crime. It's a moral crime. And that's what we're going to have to fight about. And that's what we're going to have now as, a, as an example to point to of what it should look like for all wars, whether it's in Darfur or Myanmar, or Somalia or Yemen or, or Palestine or so many other countries, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, too many to name. We need to have the, the immediate, this is the urgency of now, the immediate call for important and serious and strongly supported uh, negotiations, diplomacy to end this war. It's the only thing with this humanitarian toll that we're seeing, the largest and fastest growing 
refugee flow in Europe since World War II, we need an immediate ceasefire, an immediate withdrawal of Russian troops, an immediate willingness to, to move in the negotiations towards neutrality for Ukraine, a, a, an acknowledgement that NATO is off the, off the agenda, uh, and begin the negotiations over autonomy in Donbass and what's gonna happen to Crimea. How far away from the borders will US and NATO troops uh, withdraw? All of those things need to be on the agenda and we need to be moving towards that uh, diplomatic move right now. There's no time to waste. Many of the reports that we uh, read, and, and this is uh, not to take away from the importance of the points you've just been making, but just to help clarify uh, the picture for us. Many of the reports tell us that the Russians have made a grave mistake, uh, suggesting that they're losing. Uh, uh, is there any change, Any anything do you think that might make uh, Putin back off and do you think that these reports of, of victory are they is it your impression that they're true enough or are they uh, made for the the public to hear I think my answer is yes I don't know I'm not on the ground so I don't have any independent knowledge of how the battle is going what I do know is that the, re the military reports we're getting the maps in the New York Times that sort of thing are all focused on specific battles. This is very much what the, how the US reported its successes over years in Vietnam, what became known as the five o'clock follies, the daily press briefings in Saigon, uh, which journalists that had been there for a while that were serious stopped going to because it was everybody's idea of a bad joke. They were all based on, we took that hill. It was a huge victory. We took that hill. It's like, what hill? What, what, what does that matter? The overall reality was the US was losing that war from day one. It was no surprise that they lost the war. Whether that's what's underway here, I don't know. I don't know if there is a possibility that Russia could escalate further. We know they could do more damage. We've seen it in other situations at the same time in Syria that the, that the US was destroying the city of Raqqa to get rid of ISIS fighters. Russia was backing the, the Syrian government in destroying Aleppo. They happened at this, the destruction of both cities happened at the same time. What Russia did in, in Grozny and in, uh, uh, in the, the, the earlier war in its own territory, uh, the destruction of the city. So that could happen even more than it is now. That's already going on, but that could get worse for sure. But it's not clear what the, what's motivating the Russian decision-making, either military or, or political. What we can do is keep up the pressure for a negotiated settlement. If there is an, exp an expansion of the war, this notion that, well, if there was going to be a no-fly zone, maybe that would help. It wouldn't. It expands the war. It is an escalation. It's not about that would, would Putin see it as an escalation. It would be an escalation. This is one of the things that was so important in Libya in 2011, a, a decade ago when we saw there was a fight going on within the US administration and the Obama administration, whether or not to support the European demands and, and some, only some Libyan demands for a no-fly zone in Libya. And the, the support for it ironically came from the top diplomats, came from the State Department. The opposition came from the military. And the then Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates was very clear when he said, let's be clear, 
a no-fly zone in Libya starts with attacking Libya. It's a war against Libya because it has to start with taking out all the anti-aircraft batteries in the country and the planes that are now bombing in Libya. That would be true in Ukraine. If the US imposed a no-fly zone, it would have to start with directly attacking Russian anti-aircraft batteries across Ukraine that would be staffed by Russian soldiers. It would mean a direct escalation of a direct US-Russian attack. Some of it might even require going over the border into Russia where some of the anti-aircraft batteries are apparently located. It would be disastrous. Far more Ukrainians would be killed. You know, this is, this is not, I think we have the image of no-fly zones being something like out of Star Wars, you know, a magical shield. You sort of declare it and suddenly all the planes disappear and there's no more bombs. Wouldn't that be great? But it isn't. It's an escalation of an air war. And air wars kill people. And in this case, they will kill Ukrainians. So, you know, I think that the notion that expanding the war, extending the war, all is going to lead to more dead civilians in Ukraine. And that's unconscionable. That's not anything we should be supporting. We should support getting to the diplomacy sooner, not later. Will there have to be concessions? Absolutely, absolutely. That's the reality of war and power politics. You know, the victors, there's victor's justice. When you have a clear victory, when you've destroyed the other side after using nuclear weapons, I'm thinking World War II here. But absent that, there's going to have to be negotiations. There's gonna to have to be concessions from both sides. That is the reality. And the sooner we get there, the fewer people will die. And thank you so much. Uh, if you just join us, uh, I want to tell you that you are listening to Talking About California. This is Loreto Rojas, and I'm here today with my co-host, Carl Winslow. Uh, we are interviewing Phyllis Benis, the celebrated fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., author of dozens of books in international politics and policies. And this is KCYX, Mendocino Community Listener Supported Radio Station. The two questions I have, and I'll put them together again so you can decide um, which ones are the most important. So I know in part from my own life experience and in part from my studies that there, uh, there was an opposition to NATO right back into the 1950s. The New Left in Britain, for example, um, my teacher there was a man called uh, named Edward Thompson. And one of the New Lefts, which was an independent left, independent of Washington and uh, Moscow, they said, they called for uh, the abolition of, of NATO, and they called for NATO out of the UK at the time. So my question is, it's been around. How has it come to be that uh, things have gone so far in the other direction? And especially uh, for us here in the United States, how are we to comprehend that we have military bases, not just NATO bases, but military bases, all over the world, 100, 200 of them. Uh, it, it depends on... 850. So how has that happened? And uh, Or just as important, but it's not clear to me, maybe it's because we're kind of isolated here in Northern California. It's not clear to me how uh, 
it's developing here in the United States, but we know there's seems to be a significant anti-war movement in Russia itself. Mm-hmm. Plus in Europe, there have been big demonstrations in Germany in particular, a couple hundred thousand people in Berlin, I think. How do you, uh, what do you, would you have to say for, to anti-war uh, activists about what, what to do in kind of a, even you've, you've been very succinct, but even it's, it's a difficult uh, terrain. It is difficult terrain. Thanks for your question, Cal. I think both of those are very important. The first part, which goes to the question of how is it that NATO got to this? I think that I'm not as familiar as you are with the early opposition to NATO in, in the 50s and 60s, but I know from the, the time of, uh, in, in the 80s, during the time of the nuclear freeze movement in Europe, NATO was a target of that because NATO was already part of the process of expanding nuclear weapons around the world. What I mentioned earlier, that there are uh, five NATO countries that host US nuclear weapons on their territory. They would be fired from their territory. Uh, So it's, you know, that's uh, one of those shocking realities, I think, for people in those countries, that that's still the case. You know, the, the movement against NATO really began with the collapse of the Soviet Union when the raison d'etre of NATO faded away. And there were calls in that period when we were talking about a peace dividend, all of that in that brief moment before militarism and new wars emerged, there was a lot of talk about ending NATO, the no to NATO movement that spread across Europe and then across to the United States. There was a, it was a big component of the anti-war movement at that time. So that has continued But I think that what happened was that powerful countries led by the US and its allies realized that NATO was a very uh, useful tool to provide among other things, a multilateral military credential on what were essentially unilateral actions by the United States. So you had perhaps the most extreme example in 1999, when the US had decided that it wanted to go to war against Serbia uh, around Kosovo. There were human rights violations, serious ones underway in Kosovo. And this had become the US position, this kind of direct military intervention as the solution to human rights violations. Of course, they got much worse with the war. We know that now. But that was the call. And they realized they could not get UN Security Council support and agreement to endorse a war in Kosovo because Russia would, would veto it. So instead of going to the Security Council, what's required under the UN Charter. The UN Charter, which is vague about a lot of things, is very clear about what does it take for a war to be legal. To be legal. And the only two criteria are either direct self-defense, which was certainly not the case for the US, or if the Security Council uh, endorses a war, authorizes a war. That was not gonna happen. So for the US, instead of just saying, well, I guess we can't go to war, let's find something else to do to end this situation. They said, well, we won't go to the, to the Security Council. We'll ask permission from the NATO High Command, which of course has no legal legitimacy anywhere. Nowhere in international law is the NATO High Command given the right to determine what is a legal war and what is not. But nonetheless, they made the judgment and it became a, a, a hammer and nail issue. If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're NATO, everything looks like it needs NATO military intervention. So what a surprise, they voted yes. And NATO went to war in, uh, in Kosovo with horrific 
escalated humanitarian consequences. The movement against that has continued. I, I remember the, the last time I was tear gassed actually was at an anti-NATO protest in I think it was 2010 or 11 in Strasbourg, as a matter of fact, on the French, uh, the French-German border. Uh, where the NATO high command was meeting. It was a NATO summit. And there were thousands and thousands of protesters in the streets protesting NATO and saying no to NATO. NATO should be dismantled. So that has been a given. It goes to the question of your second question about what about the peace movement? What are we doing? What do we need to do better? What do we need to do more? And I think a lot of what we need to do more is the educational part. As you say, as you both have indicated, this is a complicated question. In this country, in the United States, where our country has been going to war so consistently for so long, our anti-war movements have learned a lot about how to challenge US wars. We know how to link the cost of war to the cost to the poorest people and people of color in this country. That the reason we, we can claim we don't have enough money for Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and healthcare and jobs and all the things that we need is because 53 cents of every federal dollar goes directly to the military. That's a lot of money that we don't have access to to pay for the needs of the 140 million poor people in this country, right? So that's part of how we build movements. It's part of how we connect the anti-war demands to the, the movements for immigrant rights, the movements for women's rights, the movements against racism, the movements for environmental justice, all of these movements are connected to the war economy and, and are hurt by wars. So by making those links, our movement gets stronger. Not by saying that every movement should make anti-war demands their top uh, focus, but that they are part of the solution. Ending wars is part of the solution for every social justice movement in this country. And it's on us, the peace activists, to have that material and make that accessible to all these movements. So that's one part of what we need to do. Another part is we have to figure out ways to use the hypocrisy and the double standards that fill us with such rage for all the right reasons. It's an outrage that we see this, this disparity of how Afghan refugees or Palestinians or Syrians are treated, how Central Americans are treated at the, at the Southern border, how African refugees and African migrants are treated everywhere. When we compare that, to how these white European Ukrainians are being treated. And we have to tr turn that outrage into analysis that lets us use that as a teaching moment, that lets us use that double standard to say, this is how we do it. This is now proof that we know how to do it right. And we have to get over the racism, the xenophobia, the Islamophobia, all the other things that are at stake when we see the Muslim ban, when we see children being separated from their parents, all of these things, when we see a, a cap on refugees, we should be demanding an end to the cap. Every refugee in the world that makes it to the United States border should be given a hearing to see if they get refugee status here, period, full stop. That's not only what international law requires. It is what international law requires. It's not only that, it's also the, the bare bones of what a moral position should look like. So our, our movement has a lot of work to do. And I think we've spent probably more time than is useful 
debating with each other over whether it's primarily about the, the role of, uh, of NATO, for example, in provoking Russia, which it certainly did, and the fact that the, the Russian response to that provocation was not justified by the provocation. You know, Russia did not have the right to go to war against Ukraine because it had been provoked by NATO expansion. We have to figure out better ways of holding both of those realities that yes, the US and NATO provoked Russia, period, full stop. And Russia had no legitimate right, no justification, no explanation is acceptable for this invasion. It's illegal and it should be stopped. And it includes war crimes. We're better at doing that when it's our own government that's doing it than when it's another government and particularly one that the US also has a relationship of hostility towards. That makes it harder, but it doesn't make it any less necessary for us to do that educational work, for us to go forward on stopping this war, not just saying the, the slogan, you know, we need diplomacy, not war. That's a great slogan, but it doesn't mean anything if you can't explain what would the diplomacy actually look like? Who has to give up what? Yeah, it means that, that Ukraine is gonna have to become a neutral country. It is gonna have to give up membership in NATO. That's one thing it's gonna look like. What Russia is gonna to have to do is a complete immediate uh, ceasefire, an immediate withdrawal of forces. All of that is gonna to have to happen right away. So we have to be able to explain what the negotiated settlement is likely to look like, that it's going to have to mean concessions and that that doesn't have, that isn't changed, that isn't, you know, that isn't reversed by the fact that we also recognize that there's a history. History is determined by when you start the clock. You know, if you go back 30 years and look at the question of NATO's role, yeah, it's incredibly provocative. In 2008, when, when the, the NATO summit voted unanimously, Article 23 of the summit declaration says, Ukraine and Georgia will be members of NATO. That was an incredibly stupid, provocative thing to do. And we're at history today. And the urgency of now says that we need to focus on ending this war and recognizing that whatever the provocations, Russia had no right to invade Ukraine. It's a sovereign country. So that's all a complicated package that we have to learn how to talk about. Thank you so much uh, for saying all of that to us and explaining it so plainly to our audience, uh, Phyllis. Unfortunately, we are at the end of our time, but we are so honored to have had you today. And uh, I want to remind everybody that you just heard an interview with Phyllis Benis of the Institute of Policy Studies. We'll be back soon with another program in this series. Until then, thanks for listening. We've just had a sort of primer on politics in these, this age of war. And I know that this interview will be widely listened to and consulted by many. So for myself as well, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.